Welcome back to Thanks Good Talk, a shortcast with Ivan and Mark, everything that's happening in Washington. Today, our special guest is Simon Rosenberg, preeminent political thinker. What role do you have for the new Democratic Network these days? Oh, I'm the president. I started it amazingly 26 years ago. Yeah, I didn't know if you were founder <laughs> and chairman. Yeah. I've yeah. known you since before then. Um, yeah. So good to, uh, to have you here today. It's good to be here, guys. So thanks for being here, Simon. You know, I, I, I do, I, I, in, at least in my head, Simon, I was at the happy hour where we kicked off NBN. Yeah. Uh, right. So um, I, I consider myself part of the, uh, the history of yep. NBN. Um, it's, it's fantastic to have you. And we usually start off by asking our guests to tell us a little bit about, you know, how, how you went about deciding this crazy career, how you got into it, and tell us a little bit about yourself and your organization. Sure. You know, I started my career out of college as a TV producer and writer. I worked for ABC News. Um, I then went to go work on the, I left that world to go work for Mike Dukakis in 87, 88. I really, politics was really more of my interest. And then I, when we lost, I went back to New York. I worked in the TV news business for a few years. And then some of my buddies from the Dukakis campaign called me and said, hey, we're going to work for this guy named Bill Clinton. Why don't you come meet him? And 30 years later, I'm in Washington with a mortgage and three kids and running an organization. And that's how it all began. Clinton, you know, I worked for Clinton from the early days. He won. And then in 96, I started the organization called NDN that I run now, which was done with the White House's help and Clinton's help to create a political movement behind him uh, and uh, to make sure that there were more new Democrats and more Clinton supporters inside the Democratic Party. And, and um, that's how it all started. Well, terrific. So one of the things that Simon is really good at, besides um, his political insights, his understanding of the way Washington, D.C. works, he's, he's, he's by far my most optimistic and favorite uh, <laughs> member of the Twitter family. Um, you know, I, I, every time I see, I was telling Simon, every time I see one of his tweets, you know, I jump to it because I know that after I read it, I'm going to be able to erase the crazy negative thoughts that are in the media about what's going to happen in the elections. And, you know, Simon's just one of the more opt most optimistic guys out there. So, Simon, what, what, what keeps you optimistic? So, bottom line is, two weeks out, I'd rather be us than them. And, and the reason why is that, you know, this week after last week was a little bit of a wobbly week of polling. This has actually been a very good week of polling. We had a very good poll in Nevada and Pennsylvania. And also Wisconsin showed the race competitive. Uh, the weekly tracks have all been much better this week. I mean, some of them have shifted three to four points for the Democrats, which is more than the movement to the Republicans that caused everybody to go crazy last week. The early vote numbers, we're starting to get in, you know, a substantial amount of early vote. The early vote is, looks really good for Democrats. It's a, we've, more people are voting in this election so far than voted this time in 2018, which was an historic turnout election. And the vote is a little bit more Democratic than 2020. And so, uh, we should feel good about that. And then states like Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, um, and Georgia, the early vote is really good, not just good. And so encouraging news in the early vote. And then perhaps most importantly, our candidates have more money than Republicans do. And if you know how political ad spending works with lowest unit rate, um, you'd rather have your candidates have more money than your outside groups. And it probably means that we're going to put more ads on the air in the final two weeks, even though the Republicans may spend 
more money just because candidates get a lower cost of every ad. So I feel like we have the ability to end strong. And I think the real question for me about this election has always been, would the strong overperformance that we saw in the five House specials that happened after Roe ended, uh, you know, which were for all of the country, right? Uh, you know, they were in Alaska and, and you know, Kansas, and Kansas and, I mean, Nebraska, Alaska, New York, they were scattered across the country. And we also saw it in Kansas. We saw people come out in huge numbers and Democrats did far better than the polling indicated uh, and far better than expectations. And the question is, with that dynamic of actual people voting and overperforming, would that carry on to the general? And to me, that was always the biggest question. And right now, part of the answer to that is it looks like we're seeing the continued Democratic overperformance of, of public polling in actual voting. And you know, that's what I, that's, and I'd rather be there than on the other side. So I, I feel good. You know, look, I don't think anybody thought we were going to have a shot in this election. The fact is this close is kind of a miracle and, and a testament to the grassroots of the Democratic Party and the fight and spirit of our family. Um, but we got to close strong here and, and win this thing. And, and I think we, you know, at least we got a reasonable shot to do so. So following up on that, Simon, um, you know, I, I think one of the things that um, has changed, at least for me, in terms of following the elections, um, is are all these models that are out there, 538. You know, everybody, everybody's got some sort of role pot that sort of tells you um, which way the wind is blowing. And even though they're wrong every time we assess with it and look at it 10 times a day and, you know, notice any little difference. Um, you know, you, you, I've seen you made some interesting comments about, you know, some observations about them. Tell us about those. Yeah, look, I, I think that this cycle, polling as troubled as it was and screwed up as it was, I think it's become even more broken, the cycle. Um, you know, and I, and I think that part of what's happened is there are a few things that have happened. One is that um, we've we had such a huge expansion of the electorate in the last two elections. So many more people entered the electorate. The electorate grew dramatically. It means that really trying to understand who's going to vote in a midterm just got much harder. I think you're also seeing a lot of um, media polls and other polls that are being done with very low samples, with very high potential margin of error rates that are being done for clicks and just to get into the play. And they're not, they're kind of quick and dirty, crappy polls. I, I think there's far higher percentage of what I would consider to be garbage polling this cycle. And then the third thing that makes all of this stuff suspect is that you know, I think there's a general view that there's polling is kind of mostly independent groups and media and, you know, and it's not really that way at all. I mean, about 40 percent of the polls that have been done in the last few weeks are being done by Republican organizations with the Republican money. Um, about, you know, 55 to 60 percent are media independent polls. And then, you know, 5 percent or so are Democratic polls. And that means that, you know, Republicans are having an enormous sway over influencing the averages and setting the agenda on what's happening with polling, interpreting, because they're when they do a poll, then their pollsters are interviewed or they get in the media. And the Democrats are just not in the game on this stuff. And I think it's there's been more of an imbalance this time than there has been in previous elections. I mean, there's eight or nine different Republican polls now that are coming out with regular polling, um, almost as much as the independent media polls. I don't I, I think that's also a long-term problem. But it's like everything. Republicans are just louder than Democrats in every way, right? And they're more noisy. They control more media assets. They may be in the process of taking over Twitter, right, of all things in the next few weeks. And so this is not inconsistent with this broader challenge that we have that, 
there's an imbalance in the loud in what I call loudness between the Democrats and Republicans. And and Simon, talk to us about what the consequence of that is. Do do those kinds of polls actually persuade outcomes in the election, or do they just create the the surprises that the polls were wrong? Yeah, it's an interesting question, and I I think one of the reasons that I've been so vocal and visible in the last few months is that I I felt like the the media narrative about this election. You know, I in May I, the first column that I wrote that this election was not going to follow traditional midterm sort of physics was back in November of last year. And I said, look, the Biden approval rating and the congressional generic, you know, which usually track each other, had split and split off from each other and were not tracking. And that, that and my explanation for that was that the Republican Party, you know, ran towards MAGA politics that had just been rejected twice by the American people. And that you know, there was gonna, it was going to be very hard for people who had voted against MAGA twice to now vote for them. And that was a mistake for them. And it was going to keep this election close. And I predicted in November of last year, this was going to be a very close midterm. And then in, I started, you know, and then after Roe happened, then the data became very clear this was not a wave election. This was never a wave election. There was never a red wave. It wasn't like there was a red wave that receded. There was never a red wave. Um, and all this media commentary around red wave was really, I think, just from Republican consultants and commentators just bullying the, the political system into believing that something was happening that wasn't happening, that should have been happening, but that wasn't happening. And, and we're going through that again. I mean, today, the New York Times announced that the red wave had returned when it had never actually come in the first place. And it's actually not happening based on all the polling that we're seeing this week. And so I, I do think that part of what's going on here is that, um, you know, if you write a story now in Politico or Axios and you criticize Democrats, you get more clicks than if you criticize Republicans. And I think that there's becoming a, baked into the ecosystem of this city um, is sort of a Republican bias that I don't think used to be there. I've been doing national press for 30 years. Uh, I've never encountered a press corps more hostile uh, to Democrats than I've encountered in the last year and a half. And, and I've been thinking a lot about why that is. And I do think it's because of the, the Republican ecosystem has more stuff gets shared around more, right, by their voters than it does on our side. And so there's now becoming a sort of financial incentive to go after Democrats. And I think it's a pernicious thing that's developing, and it's something we're going to have to talk about after the election. One of the things that makes your your insights uh, so valuable is that, you know, you're, you're yeah, no bombast, just uh, just the facts, ma'am. And so you look yeah. at things. So one of the things I'm curious about, we've talked about polls, um, and we get all the media reporting on the polls, but do you have insight into what the actual registrations, all those new registrations yeah. are going to tell us? I mean, I'll give you a statistic. In Nevada in 2020, 40% um, of the people who voted in the presidential election had not voted in the Nevada presidential election in 2016, right? Just think about how much that is. A, yeah, no, it's a crazy number, right? So. We, we, I don't think people really understand how many new voters there are. And, and understanding how those voters are going to vote is very difficult. I mean, you're now getting into more art than science in many ways. And it's one of the reasons the polls are all over the place. Um, I, I would say this, though, in terms of the data that I'm really looking at now is the early vote data. I mean, the early vote is a new thing in our politics. We've never had the kind of scale, uh, you know, since the pandemic, our election system changed. and 
you know, we're starting to, you know, we have um, uh, the early vote is now going on for weeks. It's, it's more important data than polling. And, uh, and we're getting a lot of data now and every day. And that data is very encouraging for Democrats, frankly. And, and that's the stuff that I'm really focused on now in terms of what I think is most important for us to look at. And some of that has to do with registration. I mean, the registration numbers changed dramatically after Roe ended. On June 24th, Roe was ended. We have clear definitive data that the people registering were 10 to 15 points more female. It's largely young women. Um, you know, who tend to be the least likely to vote in some cases, right? Because younger people just vote less. So you saw a huge spike in voting interest in the registration numbers. You saw it in the specials, the five house specials and in Kansas. And, you know, you're seeing, you know, we're not seeing a big spike in young people voting yet. Young people tend to vote late. It's, um, and, and they don't vote early. They're not an early voting crew. But I do think that one thing to think about, right, if all this work we do to make phone calls and do texting and knock on doors is about creating social pressure on people to go vote and participate, that's what that's called in social science and political science. Think about what it means that there's daily stories about how many people are voting. And so it means that there's two weeks of social pressure being put on everybody based on this early vote. And I think it's one of the reasons we're seeing such an increase in voting because now it's not about, well, on election day, I don't know if I'm going to vote. Now you've got two weeks of people saying, hey, are you going to vote? What are you doing? I mean, everyone's voting. you got to vote. Your mom's calling you. Your friends are calling you, right? And so there's this expanded window where you're getting pressure put on you to vote. And I think what it's doing is that it's driving turnout way up, right? Making it easier for people to vote is making it vote go way up, right? That's really good for the country. That's good for our democracy. It's great. It's very affirming given all the fears we have about our democracy to see so many people voting early and, and using the system and to strengthen our dem democracy itself. So, I, you know, I, I think there's a lot. I think this early vote thing is really kind of a new thing that we have to talk about more. I'm trying to get national reporters to write about it. There's been virtually nothing written about it so far uh, this cycle. But it's uh, our politics is changing a lot from the way and campaigns, you know, Democratic campaigns, GOTV was you know, for four days, right? Now it's for six weeks. And, and that's a big change. And I will tell you, you'd rather be turning out voters over a longer period of time, because what happens is that, the, you know, if you get a big early vote, that means you're now starting to go down to what's called lower propensity voters, not on two o'clock on election day afternoon, but 10 days out. And now you have 10 days to turn out lower propensity voters. What does that do? That increases turnout overall, right? And so that's another reason why I think Democrats are going to be really benefit from this new system because we have many more irregular voters, people who may not vote, younger people, right, who don't have a history of voting regularly. And so we need this kind of two weeks of social pressure to increase turnout on our side. I think that's, uh, that's very insightful, Simon. You know, so transitioning a little bit, you know, I, I've been I've been thinking a lot about whether or not there's actually anybody that's persuadable in this election. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and in particular, like if you look at the statistics yeah. and the polling that basically says, you know, Democrats think Republicans win, it's going to be the end of the world. And Republicans think that, you know, Democrats are the biggest threat to the world. Right. Yeah. So there's there's such distrust. And it's really it seems to me a lot less sort of, you know, issues being debated, you know, minds being um, changed and a lot more of like, let's just sound the sounds and the horns that we know people on our side come out for. What do you think? 
Yeah, look, there's more tribalism in this country. There's no question, right? I mean, Trump injected sort of a really classic form of tribalism into American politics. And, you know, and tribal tribes are can be different types, right? It can be conservatives and MAGA. It could be white supremacists. It can be, you know, but it's this consciousness of group and being on a team has increased a lot in recent years. And so I think you're right about that, Ivan. And I know that you wanted, I know we're running out of time, but I know that one of the things you wanted to talk about was the Hispanic vote, and um, which is something we worked on together uh, back back in the day. You know, you were a key part of all, how I got into all that stuff 20 years ago. The first poll, by the way, of Hispanic voters ever done by a Democratic group was Simon Rosenberg and Bob Menendez, NDN and Bob Menendez in the spring of 2020. Uh, 2002, so it was 20, almost 20 years ago, about more than 20 years ago. But very quickly in the Hispanic vote is that I, I think part, my read on what's happened is that in 2020, Democrats had a dip with Hispanics that had a lot to do with COVID. The Hispanic community was heavily impacted by COVID. They were infected more, they died more. More Hispanics had jobs that were connected to, you know, where they had to go to work and be interacting with other people. They also had a lower, in, uh, they had lower levels of health insurance than any other group in the country, less wealth. And so this was a massive disruption. And I think that some of the arguments about us being shut down Democrats were affected with Hispanic men who felt that we were no longer on the side of them earning a living, you know, and getting, getting on with their lives and their families. Um, and, but despite that, Ivan, as you're very well aware, we had the best year ever in the Southwest. We won Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico for the first time in 80 years. We now control all eight Senate seats in those four states, up from just three a few years ago. So the gains we've made in the Southwest have been very substantial. There's been Republican erosion in the Southwest. Where there's been a big drop has been in Florida, right? We've had for Democrats, there's Republicans have made substantial gains, but they haven't made substantial gains anywhere else, in my view. And what's interesting is that Democrats are doing just as well up until, you know, we'll see how it goes, but we're doing just as well in the Southwest and in Texas and California as we did in 2020. And so we're actually gaining ground and the Republicans are continuing to erode in the heavily Mexican-American parts of the country. So I'm very optimistic actually about the long-term trend here. I think we're gonna keep enough of a margin to, you know, the way to think about it is that in 2004, Bush, um, Democrats netted out 700,000 votes nationally with Hispanics. But because the community has grown so much, um, we netted out in this last election at least four and a half million votes. So we won four million more votes with Hispanic voters in 2020 than we did in 2004. And that's because we may have gotten a slightly smaller piece, but a slightly smaller piece of a bigger pie is still more pie. And the pie is continuing to grow. So it's possible that we can continue to win elections with Hispanics and in the regions of the country with lots of Hispanic voters at a slightly lower margin because we still, if you have slightly less of more, you still get more, right? And I don't know if that makes sense. But so I, I'm, I'm not, I haven't bought into the, the sky is falling with Hispanics crowd. I think it's a much more complicated and nuanced story as everything usually is in politics, right? And, um, and I think that you know, yesterday we had really good polls of Hispanic voters in Texas and Nevada from Univision. So, you know, I'm, I'm fingers crossed, right? Fingers crossed on that. Yeah, I think that's very insightful, um, Simon. I, I, I think, um, you know, we had Albert Morales on the podcast. Yeah. I, think, yeah. I, you know, I, I think his insight was, 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 was actually perfect, which is, yes, Republicans did well in some parts in the last election cycle. 
and they've done well in the past. They got they had fifty percent of the vote of the Hispanic vote when Brian Sandoval was running Nevada. Yep. He did yep. really well with Susan Martinez. They did decently with George W. Bush. I mean, it just it happens. Is it a long term trend? Probably not. You know, um, they still have the the challenges that they do, but you know, um, it should keep everybody on their toes. And as long as Democrats stay on their toes, we'll be fine. Yeah, I agree. Well, Simon, as we hit the twenty minute mark in this era of information overload. That's why we call it the short cast. <laughs> so we're, we're going to wrap it up and we can't thank you enough uh, for, uh, for your participation in this today, being our guest. But before you leave, we want you to make one prediction, something that's going to surprise everyone two weeks from now. Could be House, Senate, gubernatorial, anything you like, but what's going to be the big surprise? I think... Well, I think the most important surprise is that turnout is going to be higher than it was in 2018, which was the highest midterm turnout in 100 years. I don't know that anybody really thought that was going to happen, frankly. And I think based on the early vote, that's, to me, likely to happen. And that, that has all sorts of implications from it that cascade outward. I mean, this is a wild election. I, I don't think this is like any other election we've seen. It's very unique, as we were describing. And people should be ready for surprises both ways. I mean, I, Chuck Grassley appears to be in legitimate trouble in Iowa. Nobody saw that coming. Democrats may win the governor's race in Oklahoma, right? We're going to potentially keep that seat in Alaska, but we may lose some seats in the Northeast that we didn't think we were going to lose. And so I think this is going to be a race by race, brutal fight to the end, very close election. And I think the surprise is going to be there's going to be a lot of surprises, I think. Right. Well, thanks for being with us, Simon. Uh, that's it. That's all. It's politics. It's the life we've chosen for ourselves. Thank you. Thanks, everybody.